All right, I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we are officially starting an email list as we have some big plans for the podcast and we'll be telling people on the email list first and probably only the people on the email list. So feel free to sign up and get on the email list at f20r.com. That's F as in Frank, two zero, R as in red.com. And I'll see you over there. All right. How is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Darius Monsef, who is the creator, the CEO of Brave Care. Darius, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited um, to have you on the show, especially because you're working on something unlike anything any other guest that has come on um, has been working on. So I'm excited to dive in. And with that, let's just uh, learn more about what Brave Care is. Uh, can you tell the audience what you're working on? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is just make the best healthcare experience possible for kids. Uh, it started with urgent care, and I can tell you more about the genesis uh, of the company uh, around urgent care and the need for better after-hours care for kids and support through their parents. And ultimately what we're working on now is expanding that to primary and remote care, um, but basically everything other than life-threatening care for kids. Um, Because as a parent, it's like literally the most important job you'll ever get, and we get no training for it. There's like no preparation, and unfortunately, you know, Googling for answers helps me professionally, but when it's uh, around kids' health, it's just sort of like, terrifying. So just trying to make healthcare better for kids. Definitely. So let's walk through a little bit into how it works. Then I want to hear a bit about the why. So is this a, uh, is this kind of a virtual location? Do you have a physical location in, in, in an area? What does it look like and how does it feel like for the kids that are going into to getting, uh, getting healthcare? Yes. So I guess some of that is, the, I guess, our genesis. We right now have one physical location in Portland, Oregon, uh, with the intention of scaling to more physical locations because there's a lot of kind of the scenario that parents need to kind of care for their kid. You, you physically need to go somewhere. Um, my sort of thinking for healthcare in the future is that uh, telemedicine will be amazing when there is some device in the home that, you know, the Alexa Health or Google Health or whatever they're building that has all the attachments for somebody to collect vitals remotely. Uh, they'll be able to do good diagnosis and treatment. But right now, if a doctor can't look in your throat or in the ears, there's a certain number of things they really just can't deliver great care on. Um, and so what we're trying to do in terms of our remote care is just be there for information and advice for parents. But uh, we have physical primary and urgent care locations and the idea that we're building a technology platform that opens up that geographical boundary that limits the parents and kids at that clinic can see so that parents across the country, when it's midnight and you're trying to Google for cough symptoms, there's just somebody there that has some context maybe previously of your kid and you can have a good experience figuring out, do I need to go somewhere or am I okay to stay home right now? All right, this is super interesting and I'm looking forward to continuing to dive in. But before then, I'd love to hear a little bit of the backstory and why you decided to start this company. 
Yeah, so my, uh, I've been in the consumer tech product space for more than a decade. I started as both a programmer and a designer. The benefit of that was that I didn't have to convince anybody else to help me build something, and I could let my dumbest ideas fly. Um, but one of those where I didn't intend it for it to be anything was a color community that really started as a hot or not for color, somewhat of a joke. Do you, do you think this color is attractive and somebody else doesn't? But in the creation of that, I also let people create color combinations of two to five colors. And the utility of having a shortcut for designers that are looking for a color combination but also creating a creative platform for anybody to be able to come and put a couple colors together and put a name on it became a creative process that you had no skill requirement for. Uh, so Color Lovers, uh, I guess this is like early 2000s, thrived as a, as a community and destination, Web 2.0, if you will. It had several million visitors a month at its peak. Uh, we were a five-time Webby nominee for Best Community. Um, this amazing giant community that we built internationally and have I think there's only at some point there's like maybe a couple dozen countries in the world that didn't come to the site, but otherwise it was global. And all of that is amazing, except for it never made money. So this is this like, oh, every vanity metric one could want to tell you to continue working on this thing was in place. And yet I struggled for years trying to make money. I dislike advertising and, and the way that it works on the web. So I fought hard to not just bombard that site with ads, which means I didn't make money. Um, it was a slog trying to get partnerships. I eventually brought on a co-founder who had uh, color software, and at least now we had a product to build on. But probably nine years into that, um, I had the opportunity to get into Y Combinator in the winter 2010 batch, so nine years ago, 10 years ago, exactly from this batch. Um, Having come from the Pacific Northwest, really having no exposure to the startup world, I'm doing everything bad, trying to fundraise and trying to build. Got to get you know through this YC experience, which opened up my network. I dropped out of college. I don't have an Ivy League degree. I don't have any sort of credential that opened a door for me. But getting into YC was this life-changing founder experience where now I had access to all these things and we built a company. Um, what we really learned from that was at the core of what we were trying to do, we were trying to make design simple and accessible. And we were doing that through these color palettes and we built like a pattern making tool. But if we knew that that's what we were focusing on and that's what was bringing the community around this product, the best sort of paid product that we could build around that was a marketplace for creative assets because all the other marketplaces were fragmented. You had to go to a certain site for a font, but then a different one for a photo and a different one for a you know, PowerPoint theme. Assumption is if you're buying any one of those, likely you're gonna to wanna to buy another. So what we wanted to build was the best marketplace experience that felt like the community of an Etsy, but that was all digital creative assets. So we launched Creative Market out of this community we already had on Color Lovers. It was the overnight success at the end of my nine years of bleeding and struggling through Color Lovers. Ultimately, it was acquired by Autodesk in 2014. I've sort of done a handful of things in the last five years that we can kind of get into, but I think where that goes is that um, uh, a year and a half ago, I found myself back in Hawaii where my wife and I are from, kind of unplugging from technology and ultimately found that I was depressed. It, it was hard for me to figure out, like, why do I feel so awful? It's like, oh, because you enjoy building and making things and creating and the chaos of this whole startup experience. And I wasn't doing any of that. Hawaii is beautiful for, for a number of reasons, but it's not the environment that you know supports building. So we moved back to Portland, Oregon. It's like I, was, I wanted to be around great startup energy and culture, but at the same time, a good environment for my kids. And so coming back into that, I found 
the inspiration event that I didn't know I was looking for. And then it happened with my five-year-old. We went to a bike park. He split his chin. It's the first emergency care experience we had with any of our kids. And it, as painful as that first one was, because my little guy is you know, in pain, he's crying, he's scared, blood is everywhere because the face bleeds a lot. We were fortunate to get handed a card to a pediatric urgent care nearby. I had a bunch of stigma about what urgent cares can be because as an adult, I've been to some not so great ones where I just needed like after hours care. So I had a bunch of this like uncomfort going into it. Had probably the best care experience I think I could have had in that scenario, like a pediatric expert in environment created for kids. I felt supported. I felt like he was getting great care. I came out of that going, wow, that was really amazing. The next weekend, my one-year-old had croup with Schrider. Croup is a viral infection of the esophagus, which restricts basically airflow. Schrider is that it's all wet and goopy when she is breathing. So she was one at the time, you know, not able to communicate to me. So I don't, I'm now trying to read these symptoms through a kid who's normally happy and healthy and looks like out of it. My wife is out of town both of these weekends, so I'm feeling all of the pain of what a single parent goes through that doesn't have somebody to talk you on or off the ledge of do you need to go somewhere. But because I'd been to this previous clinic the week before, the next morning I went back and I could tell by Corey, the doctor, and now my now co-founder's uh, reaction that this was a much more serious case. So we spent two and a half hours there because the way that the care was administered meant that she was on the cusp and if he had to you know, uh, increase the medicine dosage, then she would have to go to an ER because there are further complications. But this, this guy gave me the space to say, look, if you wanna wait here, you can, um, let's just watch. And basically I wasn't rushed through this, I was provided the sort of experience that was best for me and my kid. And I came out of that one going, uh, you know what, I really love little kids. Um, we just went to a Christmas party. It was a friend of a friend's. And I'm pretty sure adults think I'm not very nice or that I'm shy or something. It's just like adult social networking is exhausting for me. I'm at the kids' table or I'm in the room with the kids. Like I love spending time with little ones. And so I went, you know, I, I love kids. I want to focus my time with them as the core customer. And I know that healthcare is so broken in so many ways that I can bring this consumer product experience that I've had, uh, having built two companies that both exited, let me bring that to this healthcare space. So I had gotten Corey's number. I set up a couple coffee meetings with him and said, hey, I just want to ask you all these questions. Let me figure out what's wrong in this space. Uh, ultimately, what I found out from him was that there are 25 million ER visits a year for kids. Nearly all of those are not life-threatening. They shouldn't be in the ER. Uh, makes it a bad experience for the people who really need the you know, high-level emergency care that are there. Um, but it's parents who are worried. And if the you know, like, oh, I might not have to go or there's something seriously wrong with my kid, of course you're just gonna default go. So there really needs to be better after hours, uh, after hour care options. So we said, great, let's focus on, you know, build, scaling and building a better consumer experience around pediatric urgent care. We started doing that at the beginning of the year. We raised a small well, million dollar, you know, uh, at the time large, in hindsight, small uh, pre-seed round. And then right when we were basically at the end of that process, we got back into Y Combinator. So we just went through in the summer uh, 19 batch. What that was really amazing as like really YC, um, I think the two greatest values of this like philosophical approach of what is the biggest version of what you're working on? Where do you deliver the most impact for the customer that you wanna serve? Simultaneously, what are the non-obvious solutions that prevent other people from being able to do that? So YC is all focused culture around like hacking solutions. Um, you know, what it, and for us, what we came out with is saying is like, great, like 
really urgent care is deeply needed. It's a good business, but it's hard to drive venture scale into it. But by bringing primary care in, then we can be thoughtful about the spontaneous predictive lows in the basically because we're just waiting for people to show up in the urgent care. Um, and that we would be top of mind for anybody who's already existing primary care patient. And we already have this physical location open staff with pediatric experts. And then the remote care on top of that just meant that we can drive further efficiencies for this location by opening up the audience that we can serve to be national. So with that model in mind, we said, great, I think therefore we're gonna have a more efficient pediatric clinic than anybody else. If that's locations and return capital faster, and so it painted this picture of a, you know, a true venture scale, all while saying, you know, the number one most important objective for us is excellent healthcare for kids, and it's good that we've made that clear to our investors from day one. It's not like a cool we built a three star quality health, but we did it nationally. It has to be the best healthcare possible because these are the most important things in our world. Um, so that's where we were in August. We and then went out and raised a more than a $5 million seed round um, and didn't end up doing YC's demo date because we basically were putting that round together, um, which is uh, which is funny, and I guess for this audience, I'll tell the story. Um, last, The first time I was going through YC, I was trying to fundraise, it was struggling, and uh, I think Sahil already knows this, so I'll say it, but Gumroad was fundraising at the time and raised like an $8 million round kind of out the gate. I, for years, had a bunch of like jealousy and hostility and frustration that, well, I, I'm trying to build this business. This is a real thing. Why, why does this guy just get to raise $8 million for like, you know, he hasn't even been around for that long. All of this just like built up judgment from afar. Um, and I actually, it was only like last year where I reached back out to him. I was like, man, I can't believe I carried that for so long. Like, I'm sorry that that was even an energy I had. But when we announced our $5 million funding, I got a guy on Twitter that was clearly pissed off that uh, I've typed a lot of Twitter replies and deleted them all because at the end I was just like, I actually get you. I think I've been there and I understand how frustrating it is and you don't have all the context of why or how we raised this round. You just see, you know, you got one clinic open, you raised all this money, this is gonna be venture scale to the detriment of kids' health. It's like very much not what we're doing. Um, so now we find ourselves, you know, with the resources and the team in place to actually go execute on this vision, which is to make, you know, excellent healthcare for kids. That is an excellent story. It leads me to to want to ask tons of different questions at once, but I'll try to keep them in order. I think my my first question I want to go into is if you're uh, open to sharing, unless it's confidential. Um, I've, I've never talked to someone who's building a company that kind of starts with like physical locations and scaling physical locations. How do you plan to, like, like the money that you raise, do you plan on opening more locations? Do you plan on building tech to almost multiply that digitally? I guess, how, what's the next step now that you've raised a solid seed round? Yeah, we have to open more locations. So part of uh, what we agreed on with our investors and like why we raise this money is that you know, we believe we have this more efficient clinic model and therefore when you open a location, you return the capital back invested faster than other people. So it's like, all right, go prove it. So, you know, we're going to open at least a couple more locations here in Portland. They're already in some clinic we have. We're already licensed here. There's a bunch of efficiencies that we can just scale out in Portland first. And so the idea is like, let's do that here. Um, you know, uh, this is also a good founder related of like, I've never built a business that has physical locations. Uh, the half joke, which is a real joke I've said is, 
previous startup, again, the two that were acquired was, I really have to know what's our runway until we die and what's the CAC and LTV? Because like on a bunch of consumer startups, you're gonna get acquired before you really have to understand how well the business works. So I have built financial models for my entire career, but they're like, you know, uh, the bare minimum to survive because I didn't go to business school. I don't know how to really do a proficient forecast model. Uh, but this business is very different. So, you know, already bringing on uh, expert, you know, finance people to help me build that model. But it was a very quick, like, crap, like this is, I need to go back to business school for this one. I need to learn a lot from other people on how we build this model. Um, because there's just a bunch of cogs, accounts receivable, like real financial things that you don't normally have in just, you know, a funny web startup that you're building. Uh, so very much right now focused on a, a, a Portland expansion when we feel like we've validated that we can do that locally, we go raise a next round that helps us expand regionally. And then if we are good at regional expansion, you know, the vision is ultimately to be a national healthcare brand. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, an additional question that I had uh, as you were telling me uh, kind of the story of how this got started is a two pronged question. So you did YC 10 years ago, a decade ago, and you recently did YC again. Um, how, in that decade, how has YC changed and how have you changed as you observe yourself going through the same program a decade, a decade later? Yeah, we both changed significantly. Um, I was, although dating, but not yet engaged when I went through. So now I'm married, three kids, very different place in life, amount of time and resources I have for things. Um, and YC has also changed. And I think like this happens with any generational group. It's the senior high school class or the college class or the company. It's like, oh, well, when we were there, those were the good years. And that somehow it's changed or gotten worse. So you just sort of look back uh, with that lens. Um, I think it was great when we first went through. It was life-changing for me. Um, it's significantly bigger now. There's by 40 startups in our first batch. is 200 plus in the second batch. At the same time, YC has put a lot of efforts into scaling their support for those 40 startups uh, or the 200 plus startups. So where before we had amazing resource, Paul Graham and being able to do office hours with him, he's like a mad genius. So the office hours are like, you know, hard to wrangle because he's just so uh, like creative with his thinking and pushing you. And you're just like, I don't know how to respond to that. So that was like this amazing resource, but there's kind of one of him. Now they've brought on so many experience of their founders that you not only each, there's multiple kind of groups inside the batch. Um, you have your own, we had four, sort of group mentors for us. One of them is actually Aaron, my previous co-founder in Creative Market, so it was pretty awesome to get to go back a second time with him, but we're just in different roles. And then you have all of the other, uh, you know, basically group partners and mentors uh, in YC. So in that respect, it was even better. Um, part of the way that I think about it as a two-time YC founder is that when I, we sold to Autodesk in 2014, I had started another company called Sitebox that ultimately got acquired by Johnson Johnson in 2017, but I didn't run that one. My best friend, I started with him and he was the CEO, so he ran it. I spent almost five years back in Hawaii, like professionally killing my career, um, you know, basically not doing anything. I did a small startup from there, but it just was like going off to die professionally in the corner. And 
what YC helped me is one, I think it was great for the company and it again leveled up everything about where we're at now was because of that experience. But for me, it was the fastest personal way for me to regain all of the professional momentum that I had as a founder. Um, you know, my network had gone pretty stale. I hadn't been having meetings. I wasn't, I, even the four year change of having raised my last seed round, the, you know, the way those rounds are getting put together now with mostly safes, uh, Carta, all these tools weren't available the previous time. So I was like, oh man, I gotta catch up on how all this stuff is happening. Um, so yeah, incredibly different, um, both life-changing for who I was at that point in time when I went through that experience. Yeah, that's fascinating. You're the, the you're the first person I think ever to come onto the podcast who uh, mentioned Paul Graham and when just kind of what it was like working with him, even in a in a little way. And I'm a big you know just like a lot of people, I'm a big fan of his essays, uh, and he is a mad genius. Uh, so it's uh, it's cool to hear some stories. Uh, I I want to transition the conversation a little bit away from brave care and to the kind of the business function that you feel like you have a, a gotten a good grip on in your career. And, you know, before uh, that we started recording, you said that was product. So I'm going to start high level on just how you think about product and building product, developing product, and then we'll get more niche and specific, but let's start high level, like, like product. Every company has a product or a service, but in this case, let's talk about products. How should someone think about building a product that people love? What goes into building a product? Yeah. So this is Paul Graham is the perfect segue here because, um, I was recently watching, it was the Bill Gates mine, uh, I think it's on Netflix, this documentary series. And I'm watching that. And again, I've been exposed to people like Paul Graham. I've been in rooms with just incredibly smart people. And I'm watching this documentary going like, I wish I was as smart as these people. And I was telling my wife this, and she's like, don't put yourself down. I'm like, it's not a, I'm not putting myself down. I'm just realizing that there are technically intellectual, incredibly smart people. And that I was trying to get into well, like, well, clearly I'm, I'm not a dummy. I, I have some talents. Like, well, what's my version of that? And I think what I've come through without really thinking too much on it to define it. So this will be the experience of it is that there are these like technically intellectual founders. And then there is the intuitive intellectual, if you would call it that. So for me, um, I have good intuition on my good gut skills, um, maybe a good sense of empathy and what it's like to be the person that's using something. And over time, the more startup experience I've had, clearly uh, intuition is largely, it gets better the more experience and the patterns you can have to pull from that to what are the things that uh, make the spidey senses go. Um, so probably my background is both being, I, I, the first startup I ever did, I was actually the CT, like I was the technical co-founder. I had design co-founder. Now that's laughable to me because I've written code really and shipped anything in like probably a decade. So I understand how things are built, although I no longer write in any language that's useful. Um, so I, I have empathy for the people that are building the product. I have empathy as like a now more of a design product person of well, who's the user of this and, and why would they want to use it. And my advice, I, I run a, a summer camp in Hawaii called Nalukai for high school students, trying to get them exposed to, like really, it's really storytelling um, because I think that's a universal life skill. Um, you know, it's selling your parents on the vision of why they should let you have a car or it's, you know, getting a job or into a college that you ultimately want or someday when you're either running a company or you're on a management level at the 
company, be able to come in a compelling way, tell a story that lands with the person on the other end. Um, and what I tell them a lot is the best thing that you can do is just build the muscle to think through what would the product be and who's the customer of some pain or problem. So I just naturally have done this all the time and I have a notebook where if I have a little idea, I got to at least run through the, the full what is this and how would it work because I need to purge it from my mind, but I can't until I kind of get through at least, um, you know, well, who would that customer be? Um, what would they be willing to pay for that is of value to them? I like branding and stuff. So like what would the name of it be called? The quick little extrapolation of how many users are there and how much revenue could this thing generate? Then I can kind of put it to bed. But the more that I do that, I think I'm just sharpening the skill of like, well, then what is the thing that we should be building? The other thing that I would say that in the realm of product, which is kind of a dual edged sword here for me, is that I'm good at seeing uh, an elegant solution in a complex set of things, um, which is both good and bad. Mike, I have amazing co-founders with Brave Care, um, and we just went through this kind of exercise recently of thinking like, well, I'm a, I'm a plus one person. We also need the like take one away person because we're going through a set of like, oh, we should really do this. Wouldn't it be amazing if we did that? It's like, yeah, and we could do this, and we could do this, because in my mind, I can see how they all work together, and the, the way that they work together actually reinforce and, uh, reinforces and creates this flywheel, and it feeds on itself, but then somebody needs to be like, yeah, but right now, we can only do one of those things, so let's just do the one and do it incredibly well. Um, so it's, it's good, so I'm like really learning that about myself. Like, that's my skill set, but I want to have somebody that can balance that and help us understand like there's a certain amount of limited resources and scope. Uh, but so for product for me, I would just high level define that as like, you know, it's not just what is it that we're building, but why people would want to use it. Cause ultimately that will reinforce the what um, to build a better product. So there's this, I'm going to call it a heated debate, but a general philosophical debate on product that I see on Twitter a lot, which is the, the kind of two sides, one side being, the lean startup, talk to users, ask what they want, you know, do user research and, and build to that. And the whole other side being this like Keith for boy, Steve Jobs, like, no, just like you have what you want to build and just put it out there and, and see what happens. But like, you gotta, you gotta put something new out there. Where do you fall on the spectrum from like hardcore lean startup to Steve Jobs, put something out there and they, cause they don't know what they want anyways. It basically just goes back to that like intellectual founder versus intuitive. I fully appreciate and I want I like want to be the person who's data driven in that and like we've done all the market research and we talked to you know 500 customers in order to find this but just my skill set and where I lean is just this intuitive sense of like especially in this company I'm a parent I've got three young kids I'm feeling all this stuff almost everybody else I talk to is a parent. Um, so I feel like I'm not going blind into a space. Previous companies, I was a designer, I was a creative. Like uh, one, one, I feel like you have to embed yourself in the community in which you're building a product for. And ultimately, like you live in that community. I, I think it's harder to do it when, you know, if I was building a, you know, a female health product exclusively, like, yes, I care deeply about my wife and my other you know, people in my community, they're females. That's just not me. So I have a, it's a, a gap of my ability to deeply empathize and understand what the product problem is uh, versus as a parent, like I'm going to be, that's my number one job for the rest of my life. Um, so I have that as the base of my sense of now I, I ultimately have an assumption of what we should go build in that 
with that in mind, I think it's important to build sort of like the, well, let's build the version of this and get it out there and see how people re respond to it and then continue to develop it. But the initial like core concept to me, I lean on the, however you want to bucket that, the Jobsian, you know, just build it. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think, I think I lean more that way too, just because if you ask everyone in the market what they want, they're going to tell you iterations of what currently exist and truly transformational products um, don't currently exist. They're, uh, they got to be built. Um, so uh, another question along similar veins um, is I think there's this problem that a lot of founders have that they have one product and it's, it's doing very well. And it, maybe it's, it's finished the S curve. Maybe it's in the middle of it. They don't know. Um, but how do you um, think about a second offering or a second product um, before uh, before kind of completing the first one before com completing the S curve? Do you have a methodology on on how to know when to do a second thing? No, there's no methodology there. Um, I think I painfully learned the opposite side of that when we were building color lovers because we just kept trying to layer stuff on to try and find something. And the problem is we didn't kill anything when we tried something new. So it wasn't, we didn't have one product line that was successful and then we were adding a second to reinforce the first and or open up a new market. We're like still trying to really find a true product market fit around revenue because um, ultimately if you're building a business, like you have to generate revenue. Um, so as much as I do philanthropic work and care deeply about impact work, when I'm trying to build a company, the number one thing is this has to survive. Otherwise it can't do all the good that I want that company to do. Um, so yeah, there's no methodology. Um, again, it just goes back to my intuition and pattern recognition of like, this feels like people are using this and that either we're adding something to reinforce it or that this isn't working as fast as we need. And therefore it's time to, to open up the door on something else. I think what would be kind of interesting is, I don't know if this is product, maybe it's like product monetization or I don't know a category, but I'd love to um, kind of explain a situation that I'm in, a product decision that I currently need to make and, and, and have you kind of help me think through how to, how to make the decision. So um, cool. I am seeing, similar to you, you mentioned at some point on this podcast that you're not a big fan of the advertising model where you just, you know, you plaster ads that don't have anything to do and it's just like not a good user experience. And I feel that way for this podcast. And I'd like to like not um, rely on ads for the monetization, but I definitely would like this to, to you know, make money at some point. Um, I'm curious, at what point in, in this situation would you think to like start testing subscriptions um, and like blocking off content uh, and, and just blocking off with a paywall and saying, hey, if you want this content, um, you know, it's going to be 10 bucks a month or five bucks a month, et cetera. Um, that's what I want to do, but I don't want to shut down the momentum. I don't want to, I don't want to screw up what I've already built, but what I've already built is not, you know, ever going to make money on the current track. So how do you like think about that? If you're willing to kind of give me some insight. So the thing about product is, um, I think what uh, what I would think about for you is that content is like one of these like really hard things to monetize, um, and nobody's really found the elegant solution. Old media is still suffering, uh, you know, content paywalls for traditional journalism. Like it's that's all wrapped up in the same things. Um, but for you, 
it will give you a very, very clear indicator of are you delivering the value that that audience wants when you turn on what basically the paywall for the content. So the hard thing there is like you have to have enough users, you know, using it and in your community to really test out, um, you know, the concept of, uh, you know, people willing to pay for it. Um, had a buddy that was building a startup that was basically freemium. Um, millions of users, and it was doing well, but they were like, you know what, we know we, we, we've got to do a paid tier, and then should we do the free users and the paid? And they went through the ultimate tough decision to just say, no, we're just going to move exclusively to the paid. The nice thing about that is that all of the feedback you will now get around the things people care about and giving yourself indicators of what's the stuff you should double down and continue supporting is going to be feedback from people who are paying you for your product. It's like ultimately the people who most want it. Um, I guess if you, you know, have, you know, hundreds of people in your community, you turn on a paid service and then nobody's left over. The hard truth of that is that the content and the way that you've been producing and sharing it and the value, the information didn't match. So either you're wrong on pricing, you can make some tests there. Or the hard truth was that ultimately when it came down to pay for it, it wasn't that valuable. Um, I don't think that needs to be incredibly negative, like you're in the wrong line of uh, you know, content creation, you shouldn't do what you're doing, um, but ultimately it will in, you know, inform you of, all right, well, what is it that people are willing to pay for? Where, where am I creatively up for finding that one thing that, uh, that people would be really stoked to have? So not exactly a clear answer there for you, other than um, you're gonna get some very honest uh, feedback on your content and the value that your community sees. Um, if you did, you know, basically the, the paywall content. You're so right about every piece of feedback that, that I would get would be valuable because if someone has feedback, that means they are paying for the, for the, the product, the service. So they're, they're invested almost. So that's a, that's a great point. I really appreciate that answer. Um, so thank you. Um, sure. So I want to ask a couple more questions, then we'll wrap it up. Um, I want to shift back to brave care and Learn a little bit about what is your North Star. If you were to paint a big vision, you know, over the next decade or two, um, what direction are you rowing in? Yeah, some of that even like an extension of a product. I went to a dermatologist earlier today. Um, it's the first visit I've had with them. So I'm filling out these paper forms. And I have like an allergic reaction to bureaucratic or wasteful things, which is why I'm a founder. and I like building the future I believe we should have. And that stuff just drives me nuts because it's like, it's inefficient on every possible level. Um, this has to do with like my skin and having grown up in Hawaii, like I'm potentially like a death risk of not catching melanomas and other skin issues. So like incredibly important to have high fidelity, you know, information that I'm giving this person. And it's like a survey that I'm answering of like, oh, have I had that? Did this happen? I do this once a year. I don't remember. And I'm just going like, we've passed all this digital healthcare stuff. We're moving towards it. And it's just not anywhere near where it should be. Um, and uh, similarly, when I got the appointment reminder, it's like, hey, we have two portals. You go here for your billing. Go here for your patient records. I'm not going to go on that system. I don't want another login. And I had copied and pasted that whole message and I posted it to the team because in this industry that we're working in, I never want to say, well, you know, just incrementally better than whatever the industry standard is, is, is okay. 
Um, there's so much room to improve the healthcare experience that I want to make sure that we're basically saying, what do we believe it should be? What's the best experience? And then let's try and do better than that because even now we're, we're limited in the imagination of what could possibly exist. But the more that we start executing on it and the more everybody's aligned with the fact that there's, you know, experiences yet that have never been created, um, that we're going to move towards that. So the North star at the highest level is just, you know, um, excellent health care for kids. And that comes all the way through that care experience. So, you know, I've got a door jam in my house where all my kids heights are getting written on it, although we've moved now. So I lost the door jam and I lost that historical record. Um, all of those kinds of like lightweight, uh, data points should be getting tracked for your kids. I have an Apple watch. I got an aura ring. I have all this quantified self for me and I'm, you know, basically done developing, just trying not to get fatter as I get older, but basically I'm kind of done. But my kids, you know, they're in the highest developmental years of their life. Once you turn four, you move toward an annual uh, wellness exam. So one data point a year through your highest developmental years, it just seems crazy. So we have to build better tools that collect data along the way around, you know, height, weight, developmental milestones, um, cognitive behavioral. Uh, we should just be able to learn so much more about their development to do either early intervention or just better support your kid where they're thriving. That feeds into the wellness visits to reinforce giving parents guidance on how to support their kids. And ultimately all of that information feeds when there are more serious care issues in the future there needs to be a consolidated, clean data set of all of this information so that the smartest healthcare minds out there in the pediatric space can say, hey, we keep seeing these things happen. What are all the precursors? What are interesting things that have happened in the past? And right now there's a pediatric office by my house um, when I walk down the street to get a coffee. I can see their manila folders on the wall. It's like this wealth of historical information and what we've learned about kids and their health is just sitting in folders or in file cabinets, or now it's been digitized, so at least it's a digital folder sitting somewhere. But all of those systems are disconnected, and they're not in a place where we can have the intellectual geniuses we've talked about before start building things on top, on top of that to like save lives and better uh, support the health of our kids. So ultimately, you know, we're your urgent, your primary care, but the kinds of experiences we're building uh, will be, I think, super important for painting a better picture for how parents be better parents and that, you know, getting sick and health, uh, sick and injured is like, that's a healthy part of a kid's development and it's okay to go through those experiences, but the care of those either illnesses or injuries should never be worse um, than that experience that brought them in to see us. So yeah, that's what we're working on. That is a incredible vision and one that I would love to see come to life and also one that will require, as you obviously know, a ton of work and help to make happen. And that kind of leads me to my final question. You got a bunch of people listening to this, this episode who they could be potential employees and potential customers, potential investors, you know, whatever it is um, that are all just willing to help and ready to help. So my question to you is what is something that the forward thinking founders community can do to help you on your, your mission, um, you know, over the next 10 years, how can we help? Cool. I want to appreciate that. Um, 
for anybody who also is a parent, um, you know, what we're really trying to understand is, um, you know, what are those uh, features that a parent would be willing to pay for from a remote perspective of like, these are the kinds of things about my kid's health that I feel like are not getting tracked well. And if I be have better access to this, that would be amazing. Um, or these are the questions and concerns I've had as a parent. So I guess, you know, bringing in more information to help me use my intuition to figure out the products that we build from that. Um, on the other side of it, the same goes for, you know, people that are constantly looking at problems and trying to create better solutions. The same goes for your like adult care and health. I think it's pretty bad that like I, you know, probably supposed to get an annual physical. I probably don't do that. Like once you become an adult, like I don't, I'm not very proactive about the care for myself. And I think it's because it's not a high quality experience. Um, and it's not, you know, easy for me to participate, kind of understanding and improving that incrementally. But for these founders, like what are things just even more broadly in healthcare, um, you know, for your personal well-being, things that you believe uh, should exist um, and that we can bring um, into what we're doing with a focus on, you know, making kids you know, happier and healthier. And then the other side is like, yeah, we got a lot of scale in front of us. We're at 20 people now. We're going to double that in the next, you know, however many months so we're clearly growing and scaling um, and for the people that you know hear the idea of trying to really fix a broken industry not thinking about oh we're just going to incrementally be a better version of a middleman that makes a lot of money in this world uh, we really want to build what should exist not how do we just monetize some friction in the current ecosystem uh, we want to think about what's that best care experience. So for anybody who, who thinks like that and is interested in, but we you know we have engineering roles to community to marketing, um, data science, just a lot of, a lot of roles, finding the right people that want to support us in what we're doing. All right. You all heard it here first. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing one, your vision for brave care and two, all your product knowledge. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much, man.